0: Well, let's turn together in our Bibles, hope you brought your Bibles, you should always, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're just going to read one verse, just the first one. Galatians 3, verse 1. <clears throat> verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together as brothers and sisters who gather in your name. Lord, we thank you that um, you are with us in our midst and that you delight in the praises of your people, Lord. So thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to pray together, to sing your praises together, Lord, and to attend to the word together, the scriptures of truth. I pray that this morning as we look at this verse and consider its context, that you would give us understanding and enlighten each one of us, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. We would listen uh, for your voice, Lord, and not for the voice of man. Thank you for what an awesome thing it is that you have spoken into this world and that we can hear you, Lord. Help us to hear this morning clearly, Help us to see what you want us to see and help our hearts, Lord, to be drawn to you in worship and wonder and in steadfastness, Lord. I pray that you'd do a work in all of our hearts this morning. We would all leave here changed, Lord, and strengthened and encouraged. I pray this for your glory's sake, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are picking up from where we left off in our series in Galatians, the series that I've called Serious Freedom. And since it's been over a month since we've been in the book of Galatians, it's fitting that we pause before we dive right in and review where we are, get our bearings, get a sense of the text, get a sense of the context, so that we're not just jumping in again cold turkey. So this is what we'll do for the first part of this sermon is we're going to review and look at where we've come from and how we got to this place Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 Galatians the book is probably the earliest letter of Paul's although when Paul wrote it we should remember even though it's the earliest letter that we have of his um, Paul was a, has had been a Christian for what for over 17 years when he wrote the letter Uh, to the Galatians. The letter was probably written right before the Jerusalem council. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 15, when there was a controversy, they called together the very first Christian council. And this letter was probably written right before it. The controversy that that council dealt with is the same controversy that this letter is dealing with. The same thing, and you can read about it in the book of Acts and you can pick up on the similarities in the letter. Basically, there were Jewish teachers who claimed to be Christians, who certainly had some kind of a faith in Jesus, and they were Jews. They taught that it was necessary to keep the law in order to be saved. That it was necessary to keep the law in order to be saved. These men believed in Jesus. Yes, we stand with you. He is the Messiah, virgin birth, son of God from all eternity, came into the world at such and such a time. At, you know, 30 years old, began his ministry, was crucified and buried and rose from the dead on the third day. These guys believed all of that stuff. But they taught this difference, that a man or a woman must keep the law in order to be saved. So they think, yes, the Messiah has come, the Messiah has died, atonement, all of that. But he didn't come to nullify the law. He didn't come to do away with the requirement to obey the law of Moses. Moses. And all that that involves, we must do that to be saved. This is the controversy the council met to decide uh, whether that was true or whether that was false. And this letter is written about that very issue. and We know what Paul's attitude and mind was towards that question. These men traveled behind Paul, everywhere Paul went, seeking to influence the congregations that he founded and telling them, you know, Paul's all great, but, you know, he's missed it. Paul really hasn't taught you the full thing. Paul is a sub-apostle and he's actually kind of a maverick. And you need to know that he's not taught you rightly when it comes to the law. He's taught you that salvation is by faith only without any works that you have to do, he's wrong. And the Galatians were unfortunately influenced by these Jewish teachers. So Paul responds by writing a blistering and white hot letter. The tone of the book of Galatians is urgent as you probably noticed. It's incredulous. His tone is, I can't believe this, right? It's not only urgent, but how can you do this? And it's sharp. It's cutting. He has hard things to say. It's definitely Paul's most impassioned letter that he writes. In this letter, he doesn't only go on the defensive and defend himself and his apostleship and the gospel. He also goes on the offensive. He exposes the false teaching and the false teachers for what they are. Paul uses strong words, but Paul's concern is preeminently the well-being of the Galatians and the Christians and the believers and God's truth. So he's not just being mean when he writes a letter like this. That's not his concern, just to to rub things in people's faces. All of us would be just as sharp and just as urgent, wouldn't we, if the physical well-being of one of our loved ones were at stake? Wouldn't you get urgent about it? If someone that you loved was in harm's way, wouldn't you get urgent and passionate? And so it's the same here. Nothing is more necessary than a letter like this. So this is the occasion and the tone of the letter. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter one, and we'll just kind of skim through this, what we've looked at. When we looked at the content of the letter, we first saw how unique the introduction of this letter uh, was. So verse one through five, we saw that Paul wastes no time with any pleasantries. He dives straight into the matter. He immediately sets the stage at the beginning of the letter by declaring that his apostleship and his message is not from man, but it's from God. There's two contrary starting points that every single person starts from. From what is from man and what is from God. And what is from man and what is from God, this, this idea is, is, a, is contrasted all throughout the letter to the Galatians. That which is from man, brothers and sisters, mark this. That which is, has its source and its origin from man and not from God is all about what man can do and it's ultimately for man's glory. You notice that? Have you noticed that scripturally and have you also noticed that just in the world and in experience? That man is all about what man can do And the glory that men can receive, right? That's what the world is all about. That's what the religious world is all about. But what is from God is about what God can do. And it ultimately is about the glory of God. That's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Christianity is from God, as Paul says here. His message is from God. Because it's not about man's glory. It's not about telling man all the things that he has to do. Actually, Christianity is about telling you all the the sins that you have and that you're not worthy of any glory, but that God loves you. And God has done something for you. And all glory be to God forever and ever and ever. Amen? So Paul starts with this contrast that we're going to see runs through the rest of the letter. What is from man and what is from God? He says his apostleship is not from man but from God. His message is not from man but from God. And you'll see here in verse 4, uh, Paul, in keeping with this, emphasizes the action of God in Christ. He emphasizes the death of Christ right at the beginning of the letter. The death of Christ for our sins to deliver us right at the beginning. This is a major Issue in the book of Galatians, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. We just read it in chapter 3, verse 1, didn't we? You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as feeding the 5,000, right? Crucified. That's the main thing, and he sets the tone right at the beginning. The death of Christ is the axle upon which everything turns in Christianity, and it comes up again and again and again in this letter. As we go on in chapter 1, Paul omits his usual thanksgiving and prayer for the saints that he would include at about verse 6. He omits it entirely, and he expresses his incredulity, his unbelief. He can't believe it, that they're deserting the gospel. I can't believe you are departing from grace. departing from grace. That stunned the apostle. I'm sure that man probably saw and knew a lot of things that didn't surprise him, but this is one thing that did surprise him, that a person or people would depart from grace. Grace, your only hope, the thing that we desperately need, the only thing that reveals to us the true knowledge of who God is in his righteousness and his love, the thing that perfectly suits our need, you're departing grace for what? For law again, which we already have established doesn't work and doesn't show us who God is and doesn't help us. And Paul's incredulity comes through here. He repeats for emphasis here in chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9. Although it's not politically correct, he repeats for emphasis that there is only one good news, there is only one gospel. And there is only one way to be saved. And if you don't stick with this gospel in faith, then you will perish. That sounds a lot like Jesus who said, there's two roads to salvation. There's two roads only. One road that leads to destruction and one road that leads to life. Now, besides just the word grace, at this point, Paul hasn't elaborated on what that gospel is. He hasn't gone into explaining it. All we know is that it's connected to grace, and he's going to get into that as we, as we saw it near the end of chapter two. At the end of chapter two, he starts to unpack what the gospel is. But at this point, he just declares, there's only one gospel, and if you depart from it, you're lost. If you teach a different gospel, you're accursed, pointing at the false teachers. Paul then turns his focus from the gospel directly in the next section to his apostleship. Not that he's leaving the gospel, not that he's leaving really his his focus on the gospel, but he's turning to his apostleship, which was under attack by these false teachers because they hated his gospel and the way to undermine his gospel was to undermine his apostleship. Paul's not really a real apostle. He's kind of one of those apostle wannabes. And he needs to submit himself to the real apostles whom we represent. That's what these false teachers were saying. And yet Paul defends himself here and by defending himself, defends the message that's under attack. And he says in verse 10 that the characteristic of a true apostle is that you're not seeking to please man, but you're seeking to please God by preaching the message that God has given you and sent you to proclaim. And that's, he says, that is the difference between the false teachers and himself. Is the false teachers are really seeking to please men, to say things what men want to hear, to give that message that is from man. And Paul's message isn't popular, but as an apostle, he's committed to pleasing God by preaching the truth. Verse 13, all the way through to the end of chapter 2, we have a lengthy autobiographical section. And Paul gives us three major stories here and accomplishes three things by sharing these stories from chapter 1, 13 to the end of chapter 2. First of all, he tells us how he became a Christian and his call to the ministry. He shares about the radical interference of God in his life. He wasn't looking for God, he wasn't seeking for God, he was persecuting the Christians, he hated the faith of the Christians, and yet God radically interfered and gave him a revelation of Jesus Christ. So how he became a Christian and was called to the ministry was not the work of man, but it was the revelation of God. By saying this, Paul established his independence from the apostles because he was being accused of needing to submit to them, he's an apostle wannabe. And by sharing this, he establishes his independence from them. He is no less an apostle than any of the others. Then he shares a story about, uh, and and, and he defends his harmony with the other apostles in this story, his story of going to Jerusalem, and they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. Maybe you remember we talked about that. And by sharing this story, he accomplishes uh, with his readers that he and the apostles are actually preaching the same thing they're they're in harmony together 14 years after jerusalem after i've been preaching for a long time i went to jerusalem and they accepted me and they accepted my message so these false teachers are crazy when they say that the apostles and i are not in harmony together and then lastly paul shares the important incident at antioch chapter 2 verse 11 and on where he actually clashed with the apostle, Peter. He, this is when he clashed with them. This is a yes, it's true. You guys are bringing up this story to show how allegedly I'm at odds with the apostles and it is true that there was a moment of clashing, but he explains it and says, look, it's not because Peter doesn't believe the same way that I do. He was just, he and Barnabas and the others, they do believe in righteousness through faith. We do have harmony as I've already established. But on this point, you need to realize that Peter was wrong. Barnabas was wrong. The other Jews are wrong for trying to appease and placate the Jews that came from Jerusalem. They didn't want to offend them with the truth that they believed, and so they tried to work with a policy of appeasement. That was wrong. That was compromising the gospel. They didn't realize it. I saw it. I called them out on the carpet. Paul showed their hypocrisy, and he shares with the Galatians in verse 14 to 21, this section. He shares with the Galatians what he said to Peter on that occasion. And while this is still autobiographical, Paul's words to Peter here begin the doctrinal section of this letter. And this doctrinal section will take up the rest of The book of Galatians. This is a transition section where he begins the doctrinal section. It's from this incident at Antioch that Paul launches out into the rest of the letter to the Galatians because the issue at Antioch is the same issue that the Galatians are experiencing and dealing with. What happened with Peter at Antioch? These guys came from Jerusalem. They said the Gentiles have to keep the law in order to be saved. Peter didn't believe that, but he was trying to placate them and not offend them. This whole issue of Jews and Gentiles and how a man is justified is the same issue that's going on with the Galatians, which is why he jumps out into the rest of the letter from here. We, we talked about this in another sermon. It's all about justification. It's all about how are you righteous before God? God is a judge. God is going to judge the entire world and don't just put that in think of that in general. God is going to judge each one of us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you personally are going to be judged by God, the great righteous judge, to determine whether for all of eternity you are going to be blessed or you are going to be cursed. Blessed to the extreme because there's only Righteousness, or curse to the extreme because there's only unrighteousness, there's no degrees. The issue is justification. Will God declare you in his judgment to be righteous or will he declare you to be unrighteous? And how is a man justified? How is a person declared righteous before God? Is it by faith only in Jesus Christ or do you also have to keep the laws and the rules of God, which by the way are wonderful rules. No one is debating those rules. Paul makes it perfectly clear here that we know, Peter, and he's hinting at the Galatians, that a man is not justified, verse 16, by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. We all are sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. Put forth your best specimen of humanity. He's a sinner in need of grace, righteousness, and justification only comes from outside of ourselves and is provided for us. It's not something we have to earn or obtain for ourselves. It's provided for us by Christ's sacrificial death when he took our sins. What an awesome message, isn't it? What an amazing truth. Aren't you happy that's the way it is? Aren't you happy that your salvation on that inevitable judgment day and your righteousness is something God has Provided for you helpless undeserving person that we are that you are because he cares for you and because he loves you he's done it all for you through Jesus what an awesome message J.I. Packer comments Paul has shown that the justification of the Jew in Christ the justification of the Jew in Christ brings him down as low as the Gentile. He also shows us that the justification of the Gentile in Christ lifts him up as high as the Jew. The argument of this section is designed to show not merely that faith is the only way of salvation, but that faith is the way of full salvation. Without faith, man has nothing. Having faith in Christ, he possesses everything. He possesses everything. You possess everything because through faith in Christ, you're justified, you're righteous. God sees you as blameless. God doesn't see you as like just having a sticker that says you can come in, but you're not gonna get all the benefits. God sees you as perfectly righteous, as exactly as you should be as a human being. And he's going to give you the blessing that comes with righteousness. And Paul closes this saying to Peter in chapter two, verse 21, look at that verse. I do not nullify the grace of God. Here he comes back to grace, what he said earlier in chapter one. I do not nullify the grace of God. You know, it's interesting that a lot of Christian, so-called Christian groups, a lot of so-called Christian organizations and denominations, they all claim to believe in grace, right? I mean, if, you, if you're going to claim to believe in the Bible at all, You're gonna have to say, yes, I believe in grace. I believe that we're saved by grace. But how do they understand grace? When they think about grace, what are they thinking of? What is their paradigm? What is their thinking on grace? We hear it all the time, yes, I believe in grace. But look what Paul says here. I don't nullify grace because, and here's what he's thinking about when he thinks about grace. If righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. So basically, any Christian organization or denomination so-called, Christian, that claims to believe in God's grace and salvation by grace, that does not think or understand about righteousness through faith alone and not through the works of the law, they don't understand grace at all. They don't even know what the Bible is talking about when it talks about grace. True? So don't just be hoodwinked when someone says, I'm a Christian, I believe in grace. Ask them, tell me what you mean by grace. I mean... Does that mean that you don't believe that a person is justified or righteous through works and through the works of the law, only through faith in Christ? And if they say, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, grace is God's, you know, helping us to keep the commandments and giving us the chance, a second chance, a third chance to keep the commandments. You say, you don't understand grace, my friend, I'm sorry. Because you only understand grace when you understand that God has undeservedly blessed people who don't deserve it through Jesus Christ. It is at this point, when he finishes this statement to Peter with this, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, Christ died for nothing. See the importance of the crucifixion here. It is at this moment that we arrive at chapter 3, and we need to remember there's no chapter breaks in the original. So verse 1 that we read flows straight out of verse 21 of the section that went before. We have now reached, brothers and sisters, the heart of the letter. We have reached the heart of the book of Galatians. All introductory or prefatory remarks are over at this point. See, Paul was leading up to this with his introduction, with his autobiography, with all of this, and we have now left those introductions and prefatory remarks. They're gone. Paul was not... Is no longer moving toward the issue in, at Galatia, hinting at it. He has now arrived squarely at the issue in Galatia and the churches in Galatia. He's no longer talking now about Peter. He's now talking about the Galatians directly. This morning, we're just going to look at verse one, not because verse one is naturally disconnected from what follows. Really, it's the hinge verse, it connects what goes before to what follows. But really, when we look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3, we're going to need more time than we have now in this morning because of this review. And there's plenty of stuff to say about verse 1 to occupy us for the rest of this sermon this morning. In the New American Standard, which is the Bible I'm using in most translations, verse 1 is broken up into three clauses. Check your Bible and see if it is. If you have the King James, it's actually four or five clauses, but... Most modern translations will break it up into three clauses. Oh, foolish Galatians, that's one. Who has bewitched you, that's two. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, that's three. And as we wrap, as we uh, move on to the second part of the sermon, I'd just like to expound and draw three principles from these three clauses. And I'd like to start each point by stating a principle that each clause uh, that, is, that is in each clause and that each clause shows us. Number one. Here's the first principle I'd like to us to think about this morning from verse one. Everyone who departs from the gospel is a fool. Everyone who departs from the gospel is a fool. And before we go into this, I'd like to make it clear what I mean by departing from the gospel. I don't mean sinning in general. I don't mean everyone who sins in general. And how many of you sin on a daily basis? You do bad things. Now that's foolish too. I'm not saying that that's not foolish to sin, okay? I'm just saying that's not what Paul's talking about here and that's not what I mean when I say everyone who departs from the gospel is a fool. I'm not talking about sin in general. We all do that. Even as Christians, we sin. The thing about the salvation that we have from God is that salvation is all about what Christ has done for us as sinners, not what Christ does through us, right? That's what salvation is. When we're talking about salvation, we're not talking about what Christ does through us. Now, Christ does do things through us. Christ works through us after we become Christians. But salvation isn't about what Christ does through you. It's about what Christ has done for you as a sinner. You're a sinner and he's died for you. He's taken away your sins for you by his death. He's taken your sins and he's cast them into the deepest sea and he separates you as far as the east is from the west. He separates you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. Try to wrap your mind around that. You and sin have no more relationship anymore. Not because of what Christ has done through you. How many of you can testify of that? You're not separated from your sins as far as Eastern from the West practically because of what Christ has done through you, right? I know I'm not in my behavior. But in truth, Christ, because of what he's done for me on the cross, has taken away my sins. As we sing, my sin, O the voice of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole. is nailed to the cross, right? It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Is that true even when you sin tomorrow? Yes. yes. Praise the Lord on oh my soul, right? That's good news for us, isn't it? Departing from the gospel, I'm not talking about sinning in general and I'm not talking about unbelief in general as in people who don't believe in the gospel non-christians who have rejected the christian message which is also foolish by the way i'm not saying it's not foolish but what what we're dealing with here in the situation of galatia and what i'm talking about departing from the gospel i mean this those who believe for a time and then depart from the faith that's what i'm talking about they believe for a time and then they depart from the faith they leave their conviction That righteousness is through faith alone and not by the works of the law. That's what's happening in Galatians, Galatians, isn't it? Paul said, you guys started well. You guys were believing. You guys were understanding, it seemed, and then you're departing from that, being hoodwinked by these false teachers away from that truth that you once were convinced of. That's what Paul's talking about here. And everyone who departs from the gospel, everyone who believes for a time and then departs, is a fool? Jesus talked about this, didn't he? Matthew 13, verse 5, and he talked about the parable of the seed sown. Some seed is sown upon the rocky soil. It takes root for a short little while. They receive the word with joy, but then once persecution arises, they fall away, right? Their conviction in the gospel and in righteousness through faith wasn't strong enough that when persecution or the fires of persecution tested their faith as Peter says in first Peter chapter one it revealed that really they didn't have much of a conviction at all but they did have some sort of faith it seemed they did I also don't want to be uh, misunderstood when I say falling away from the faith when I talk about falling away from the faith because brothers and sisters, I, I believe personally that none of God's true children can fall away from the faith. That one of the uh, things that comes with being a, a true child of God, someone who's born again, is that you persevere in the faith. I don't believe salvation is transactional and that once you sort of check a box or say a prayer, it doesn't matter if you depart from the faith, you're still going to be saved. I'm saying that a truly born-again person won't depart from the faith. They persevere in the faith. As 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Think about that. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're born of God, you will overcome the world. If you don't overcome the world, it's because you're not born of God. And he finishes that verse by saying... And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. That's what overcoming the world is all about. It's about faith in the truth. Faith in Christ. Faith in the true grace of God. Faith in the true God. And that perseverance in the faith is the mark that you truly are born of God though there are some that seem to believe and fall away. Jesus told, tells us, and John tells us again in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from among us, but they weren't really of us, because if they were really of us, they wouldn't have gone out from among us, but their going out from among us shows that they weren't really of us, <laughs> right? Love how John puts that, <laughs> It's the falling away and the not persevering in the faith that you once believed in that we're talking about here. It's this falling away from the faith that Paul is calling foolish. Paul has a lot of pent-up emotion here, and it explodes again, like it kind of exploded in chapter 1 as he's been going through up to this point. He's been penting it up. And here it explodes. The Galatians are departing from the faith. They are being influenced by these false teachers. And verse 1 is what Paul thinks about their departure and their seeking justification by works. You foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. You're turning from the only hope and the only way that works and you're turning away from it the true knowledge of God and his great love and his great grace to something that nullifies Christ's death and makes it meaningless. And you're so foolish, you don't even realize it. You notice he doesn't even call them brothers here. Oh, foolish brethren. He calls them Galatians, drawing attention to their foolishness as mere men. This is strong language, isn't it? You foolish Galatians. Basically, you idiots, you numbskulls, you no brainers. This is strong language. When do we as people use such language in our own day? I was just thinking about it briefly and I thought of like when an athlete scores on his own net, right? When a man kicks a ball into his own net and everyone says, you idiot, right? (laughs) What are you doing? You're so stupid, right? That's what they'll say to a person who scores on his own net. Or if someone puts their life at risk for some dumb reason, you know? If someone jumps up on a precipice to put up a lantern or something and they didn't take safety precautions, you're like, you idiot, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself if you're not careful, right? But strong language like that when used in a religious context makes most people cringe today. So most of us will understand calling someone an idiot who shoots a ball into his own net. But most people today wouldn't understand using that same language in a religious context. It it seems to have no place in a religious context today. You can't call people idiots and fools and numbskulls with issues of faith. That's all personal. That's all relative, right? Either what Paul's saying here is bad form or excellent form. And we are to believe the latter. That the situation required... Such strong language. And Paul was not belittling them, but he was seeking to help them with such strong language to jar them awake, to turn them away from destruction. Jesus spoke like this, didn't he, in Luke 24, verse 25? He says, You foolish guys who, in slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, he says that. He he says, You're foolish for not believing. You guys are not using your heads. And so if this is bad form, then we'll have to say Jesus used bad form as well. Proverbs 27.6 is more fitting. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? There's a place to wound. We would all say that someone is a friend wounding someone if they're putting their life at risk. we say, you idiot, don't do that, because we care. Paul wasn't being, as some people have said, Quote, irascible, audacious, proud, headstrong, solipsi- solipsistic, nor fanatical. But he was loving them and saying what most people wouldn't say. Because the mind of our culture versus the, Paul's mind is the difference between uh, absolute truth versus no absolute truth. Paul says this because he believes in absolute truth. He doesn't believe religious truth is relative. Our culture does. And so strong language has no place in it. Paul believed there was real danger here versus our culture that would think there's no real danger when it comes to religion. There's no real danger when it comes to religion. It's all just about being a nice person here and now. And when you die, nobody knows and nobody, there's no hell and don't worry about it. As long as you're good, whatever there is in the next life, you'll be fine. And one other difference between Paul's mind and the mind of our culture, which prompts Paul to use such strong language, is that Paul believed the fault lies with people versus our culture, which always puts the fault on other things and not on people. He's you foolish Galatians, right? Whereas our culture would say, the environment wasn't right. Don't be so hard on them. (laughs) Paul is not saying these people are naturally stupid, but that they're not using the mind that God gave them and commanded them to use. And Paul's purpose here is to stimulate their thinking. Think, he says. Think, you guys. Think about this decision that you're making. You're departing from righteousness through faith, and you're going back to righteousness by the works of the law. Just think about it for a minute, okay? Have you ever lived a day in your life where you obeyed the law and you didn't sin. Do you think those teachers ever live a day in their life when they obey the law and don't sin? When you consider that the law requires absolute perfect love for God and for your neighbor and without any sin. And I would just challenge us all right now to think. Think about your own unrighteousness and your need for righteousness to be provided for you and for not you being the one to get it. Think about it. And you should see Think about how the law has never worked and will never work. And also think about this, as Paul says in 2.21, that if righteousness comes by the law, Christ died for no reason. But he did die, and it wasn't for no reason. Because righteousness doesn't come by the law. Christ died for us because we need the righteousness that he brings. Amen? So think, Paul says, and don't be a fool. Secondly, and look at the second clause, After he says, oh foolish Galatians, he then says this interesting thing. Who has bewitched you? And I'd like to state this principle. That everyone who departs from the gospel is bewitched by the devil. Now by bewitched, I'm not talking about some sorcerer or wizard coming and casting a spell on you with a magic wand. And you're like, bewitched. Bewitched. What I'm talking about is that Satan and his servants deceive and mesmerize with sweet sounding lies until men are transfixed by those lies and they can't think clearly and see the obvious that's before them. How many of you often feel like, man, why does why do not more people in this world see this? It's obvious. All of us are sinners. It's right there in the Bible. It's right there in our experience. It's such good news. Why don't people see it? Because they're bewitched and mesmerized by the lies of the devil. They're not thinking, and they're bewitched. Charles Swindoll says this, So irrational is the Galatians' abandonment of grace that it appears they have been bewitched, led astray by sorcery. And Barry Horner comments, The disturbers, these false teachers, had bewitched the the Galatian believers, mesmerized, hypnotized them with their subtle, appealing, persuasive approach. There was probably Jerusalem authoritarianism about them. Also, biblical fluency regarding the books of Moses, a fastidious lifestyle, passionate, even admirable zeal, along with seeming personal concern and pastoral concern for the galatians but the most deceptive aspect was the fact that like most american cults and sects, horner says christ was included in this presentation though not in the exclusive way that paul had originally proclaimed so he says what was so deceptive about this heresy is that these guys included christ in their system and these guys said yeah we're christians too like i said earlier and they they said, we're not telling you to stop believing in Jesus. We're not telling you to stop having faith in Jesus. We believe in faith. We believe in grace. We're just telling you you have to keep the law in order to be saved. Uh, to, a, to a thoughtful mind, that would say, uh, you don't understand faith, and you don't understand grace, right? And you don't understand Christ. And thus, you don't understand God and who he is. Satan is a bewitcher, brothers and sisters, and he deceives men away from the truth of God. Think about Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the first glimpse we ever get of Satan, isn't it? And what's he doing? Bewitching. And Eve was mesmerized by his lies and couldn't think clearly after his lies. Baited her like a little animal and right into his trap and got her. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be on your guard. Because our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I wonder, who is it that he may devour? Who's the whom? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we are to arm ourselves with the full armor of God, that we may stand on the evil day. What is the armor of God? You look at all the armor of God. All of it has to do with the truth of the gospel, each one. All of them have to do with the truth of the gospel that defends you against the lies of the devil. And how many of you know you can get up in the morning and not give a thought to the truth of the gospel, (laughs) right? And just coast throughout the day, not even thinking about the truth of the gospel, not girding your mind with the hope of salvation, right? And the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you get up in the morning, you don't even think about it, you just go. No wonder we don't stand on those days. I think the ones whom Satan will devour are those who ultimately are the fools. The mindless ones. The ones who don't think. The ones who don't gird themselves with the armor of God, because unless we stand girt with that armor, we will be devoured. We do have an enemy. Do you believe that? Who wants to bewitch us? And the remedy is to set our minds on the truth, to set our eyes on the truth, to beware of Satan's lies, to pray that we will not fall into temptation, to not be foolish. And not allow ourselves to be mesmerized through his lies so everyone who departs from the gospel is bewitched by the devil and is a fool and lastly look at the last clause here in verse one i'd like to draw this principle out that everyone who departs from the gospel i'm talking about people who once had a conviction who once believed and departed like the seed sown on the rocky soil. Everyone who departs on the gospel does so without excuse. You're bewitched by the devil and you're a fool because you depart against reason, which is foolish, and you depart against experience, which is what verse two through five is all about as we're going to see. Paul appeals to their experience. In verse one, he appeals to their experience as well. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You guys have experienced. You guys have seen. And so because you depart, having seen, and against all reason, foolishly, you're without excuse. Now this is an amazing statement, this clause. He says to these Galatians, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now probably not a one of them actually saw the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Right? like us, the Galatians were like us. We've heard about the crucifixion of Jesus, but we weren't actually physically there to see Jesus crucified and yet Paul says that they saw Jesus personally, he was crucified before their eyes. Now what Paul is referring to here is to the preaching and the teaching that they received by Paul and by others. He's referring to the preaching and the teaching that they received by himself and by others. And this tells us something about what Paul thought about preaching and teaching. Think about it. They didn't actually with their physical eyes see, But this tells us something about the teaching and the preaching that they received. Frederick Rendall, the commentator, says, the fact of the crucifixion with all That the fact involved was the truth which had been so distinctly set before the eyes of the Galatians in black and white. It was clearly proclaimed and explained to them. And how many of you know that doesn't always happen, right? I grew up going to church and the fact of the crucifixion and what is involved in that fact was not clearly proclaimed and explained to me. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I didn't understand righteousness through faith. I didn't understand the connection and what that meant and how that related to me and what I was supposed to, how I was supposed to respond to that because all the church would tell me is, Jesus died for you, come forward and accept him into your heart and you'll be forgiven. And as a hearer, that wasn't clearly explained to me. What, what do you mean, just come forward, accept me? Or what does that mean? What's the, what's the connection between his death and my forgiveness? They just assumed I should understand and I didn't. But Paul says that Christ was clearly proclaimed and explained to them. Martin Luther and John Calvin both said that this is what preachers should be doing, is setting before people the crucifixion of Jesus, what happened and what it means very clearly. Calvin has this to say. Let those who would discharge aright the ministry of the gospel learn not merely to speak and declaim, but to penetrate into the consciences of men, to make them see Christ crucified, and I like this, and feel the shedding of the blood. Amazing, isn't it? When the church has painters such as these, she no longer needs the dead images of wood and stone, she no longer requires pictures both of which unquestionably were first admitted to Christian temples when the pastors had become dumb and been converted into mere idols, or when they uttered a few words from the pulpit in such a cold and careless manner that the power and efficacy of the ministry were utterly extinguished. See, when the preaching of Christ crucified becomes cold and careless and the preachers are not putting forth Christ crucified, proclaiming him and explaining him, guess what, people turn elsewhere to all sorts of bad things because they don't understand Christ crucified. But the responsibility to proclaim and explain Christ crucified is not only on preachers, but it's also on people to listen with ears, to hear, and to believe and not look away. John Chrysostom An early Christian says this about the power of faith. Paul declares here the power of faith to see events which are at a distance. He's basically stating that when you believe, when you hear the gospel, when you hear about Christ crucified, when you hear it clearly explained, when you hear that and believe it, to God, that's you seeing it. That's like you were there and you... Saw it with your own eyes. The point is, you don't actually have to be there in the first century, brothers and sisters, to see the death of Christ with your own eyes. Because there were people there in the first century that were with their own eyes, looking at Jesus and these two thieves next to him being crucified. Physically, their flesh was being torn by the nails. And they saw it, but they didn't really see it because they didn't really understand what was going on. What did they see at that moment? They saw three guys being crucified, commonplace, right? That's a sight that we've seen many times. Three criminals being crucified. They didn't understand that that criminal in the middle was no criminal, and that he he is the son of God, and he was dying for their sins right there on the cross and in their ignorance they couldn't see it but that was for them an act of the love of God, an act of the righteousness of God providing for them what they needed, what everyone needs, righteousness and salvation. But they never saw it. And so you who understand the cross of Christ and what that means actually see more clearly than that person who was standing there on that day, it's better for you to have not stood there on that day and but today in the 21st century understand the cross than to stand there on that day and look at that amazing thing and not even get it. True? How many of you would like to trade? How many of you would like to trade your understanding of the crucifixion right now uh, but yet you live in the 21st century? And if, if you, it was offered to you, you could just drop all the understanding and go back to the first century and see it for yourself with your physical eyes. How many of you would take that trade? Not I. Because through the preaching of Christ crucified, I have seen the death of Christ. And I don't have an excuse then if I depart from it. God doesn't say, well, you know, you weren't there. It was 2,000 years removed. I'll give you a break. If you understand, if you've heard, then you have seen. And if you leave, you have no excuse. And as I've said earlier, here again in verse one of chapter three, we see that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his death for us is really the main thing. It's the axle upon which everything else turns and it comes up again and again and again. It is the center core of Christianity and we see that the core of Christianity isn't some esoteric thing hidden to the public kept secret only for the specially elite Christians, right? The center the central thing of Christianity, the main message, what it's all about is open to the public, publicly portrayed For everyone to hear. It's not become a Christian and little by little we'll get you deeper and deeper in this thing until you finally realize what Christianity is about. Right from the beginning we proclaim Christ crucified when we proclaim the main thing and we call people to believe and be saved. And we call them to believe right before the, the world is proclaimed the death of Christ and the amazing righteousness and love of God. Amen? Nothing secret about Christianity. But to add the works of the law to salvation is to nullify the cross and to nullify Christianity, to take away its heart and its center. And if you do that, you may have all the forms left, you may have some secondary doctrines left, but it, it isn't Christian anymore. Religion without the cross, no matter how nice, is death to have been taught and depart from the gospel. According to this verse, to depart from the gospel is to be a fool, is to be bewitched, and to have no excuse. The more light you have received, the more heinous your guilt for departing from the gospel. So let this be a warning to us. I hope that this sermon will be a warning to all of us in the confidence that all those who are born of God overcome the world, it still is for us to beware and to stand with our armor on. This is what those who are born of God will do. To stand against the devil. Let us be warned, and let us who believe never forget the cross and become mindless. But let us always keep our eyes on Christ crucified and remember, as we sing in one of our favorite songs, while on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Let's always remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the warnings that we receive in Scripture and that you tell us that we have an adversary that is out to get us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be careless as Christians and sit back and forget and think that ah, it's, a, it's, it's just a transaction, it's been done, I'm good. Lord, I pray that we would take these warnings to heart, each and every one of us, realizing that we are running a race and we are fighting a fight. We have an adversary who wants to deceive us and bewitch us away from the truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, protect us from evil. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would be diligent in using our minds and remembering the truth and worshiping you, Lord, and being thankful and giving you praise on a daily basis every morning when we wake up for what you have done for us, for the hope that we have. Lord, you are so worthy of our praises for providing for us what we need through Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. We're excited to praise you now and for all of eternity. Take this word, Lord, and put it into our hearts deep. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.